welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. My name is Zach Falconer Barfield, and alongside me is the impeccably mannered, the extremely graceful, and the decidedly etiquetteful Mr. James Marwood. Thank you very much, Zach. It's very kind of you to say. I shall endeavour to live up to that. I doubt it not, sir. I doubt it not. <laughs> so how have you been, sir? Very good, very good. It's it's a lovely, warm, sunny day here, and I've uh, I've spent a fun morning in the gym and then running a few errands, and now I'm just relaxing talking to you. It's a splendid way to spend a day. I've had a reasonably relaxing day today. It's been, been one of those um, days where I've hootled, I think is the correct phrase. <laughs> You've pootled. I've pootled. Not done anything productive, like massively, but, you know, you've done various different chores. Yeah. I could tick off a load of things that I've done, though I haven't done. Yes, fair enough. I saw on, on the Book of Face uh, that you purchased your knives. Yes, I did. I purchased the global knives, actually, in the end. I went and tried a few different designs, and I went to a couple of uh, shops that sold them, and I really liked the lightness and the precision on the global knives. My favourites, too. I bought a, a Santuku knife and a chef's knife, initially, they were great for almost everything apart from small vegetable slicing herbs, that kind of thing, because the blades don't have a, a lot of curve to them, so it was difficult to rock. But they do a specific knife for that. I've purchased one of those. I also picked up, because they didn't fit in my existing knife block, one of the very reasonably priced, actually, and lovely uh, universal knife blocks. So it's just a, a plastic tub, suitable size to hold knives, and then inside it has a flexible rubber base and coming out of these are these long sort of plastic straws that pack tightly into the case. You can just slide your knives in at any angle, any shape, any size, any which way you want. The advantage of that is it's all plastic and it comes apart. You can just run it through the dishwasher nice and easily and keep it all clean. I'm really pleased with the recommendation, so thank you. You're welcome. So uh, what's caught your eye this week, James? Well, we've been looking at a few different articles. There's a few things that have leapt out at me about... Manners in unusual situations, I think would be a good way to tag it together. So there was an article on QZ.com about Slack and WhatsApp, and also the same thing occurs in, in a number of other social media bits of software, but the problem of people adding you to a group, especially when you don't really want to be a member. I had that come to light recently where about three years ago, one of my friends started a carpentry furniture making business which he no longer does and he created a big group message on facebook to tell all of his friends about it and to offer us um, a discount if we'd like to buy something for him as he was starting up and i did actually i bought a table from him which was which was fantastic but for some reason that i don't really understand the group had been dormant for probably about three years and then last week someone decided to leave it which generated a notification and then someone else left it and someone else and then all of these people who'd been quite happily sitting in that mute group suddenly started leaving. And as they were leaving, they were generating new notifications that were causing other people to leave. And it was slightly annoying. It's how do you deal with that when somebody's put you in a group that you don't want to be in without being rude, basically. It is a very interesting etiquette dilemma, isn't it? You just get added. Yes. You can't say no up front. You just get added. All you can do then is leave and risk offending someone or, or coming across as a little bit rude. How do you manage that, Zach? It, it depends what the message is. I have had had it done to me a number of times, especially on Facebook Messenger. If it's something that annoys me or something I don't wish to deal with, then I tend to not reply on the main thread and contact the first person and, and say, thank you very much for including me in this, but 
I don't wish to be party to this. Yes. Please refrain from doing this to me again, as politely as I possibly can. And then I remove myself from the thread. I had to do that probably now, about 18 months ago, where I got included on a very angry American political thread. I don't live in America. I don't vote in America. I have a an academic interest in American politics because I studied at a university. But beyond that, I don't want to listen to people ranting and raving about this candidate or that one. So um, I did exactly as you said there and then just left. But what if it's something that's tangentially linked to your interests or it's a group of friends, but you just don't want to be interrupted by it? So everything but WhatsApp, I don't have notifications for. So on my phone, I've, I don't have any notifications for anything but WhatsApp and text messages and voice calls. That's a smart trick. Being very, very mindful of what you're allowed to interrupt you, I think is really important. For me, it's it's messages... It's emails from those on my VIP list, clients, basically, or family members, and then direct messages on Facebook, but not anything else. No, I don't have email fast notifications. I turn them all off. If people really want to get hold of me, they know to message me on WhatsApp or text message. WhatsApp's the only one that comes through, and I have a few groups on that. If someone adds me to a group on WhatsApp without my permission, I tend to leave. I don't tend to get added on strange WhatsApp groups very often. I have done once, and I... I've removed myself and messaged the person who started it and said, don't do that again, <laughs> very politely. Politeness is first. Extract yourself from the situation if necessary. If they start talking about irrelevant things on a group that's not set for it, tell them. Is this relevant to the group that we're talking about? I have a WhatsApp group for the trail walk, the 100-kilometre walk that I'm doing, and we don't talk about anything that's not pertinent on the group. There are other channels for that. It's choosing your communication channel to fit your needs. I think things like WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, you know, are relatively urgent, but if people start adding you for no reason, politely just tell them, thank you very much, but no thank you. If you're adding people to groups or you're the one pushing it out, just be a little bit mindful of... Does this person actually care about this or am I just spamming them? I think you do have to think about others, that's for sure. Social media etiquette is becoming more and more complex. Simple manners apply. I mean, the other day I was asked if I wanted to join a WhatsApp group and I was like, yes, because you asked. (laughs) If you hadn't have asked, I probably would have said no, but because you got asked nicely, I said yes. It's a bit of a truism in, in our sort of work that sometimes it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, but that doesn't account for how useful just a simple polite ask is and how people generally are quite amenable to help or to be involved if you ask nicely yeah social media is complex but my favorite one which we did see which i love there's an article in um the new yorker about elevator etiquette or lift etiquette that is a bit of an interesting one yeah i tend not to take the elevator very or lift very often i tend to use the stairs these days being the fit person that i'm trying to be but when one does i like their lift elevator etiquette Yes, do not make more than one second of eye contact, do not talk, stare straight to square head as if facing a firing squad. Yes, and move swiftly to the most empty part of the elevator, press the call button even if it's lit, press your floor button even if it's lit. I love that. Yes, you are, you are allowed to silently judge someone who presses one or two if you're in the US, um, because one flight of stairs, come on, you can make that. I have to say that does wind me up. I'm a little bit more flexible. I mean, you don't know what it is. Is someone being lazy? Possibly. Do they have an injured leg or an illness or something you don't know about? Possibly. But I always feel like I'm being judged. If I'm going up any less than sort of three flights in a lift, 
I feel like others are judging me, which they probably should be because I'm being lazy. <laughs> you know, the baseline rules are the same here as they are anywhere else. Some people find it uncomfortable. Some people find it a little bit stressful. Make it easier on everyone. Just be... People, I'd be mindful of others and you'll get along just fine. Exactly. One thing I do take slight slight issue with this article from the from the New Yorker, which is pressing the closed door button. Mm. Some people I work with at the moment have a, have a habit of doing this where you get on and they sort of glare at you as you get in the lift as if you're slowing them down and then they jab at the closed door button. Get those doors closed as quickly as possible because they're in such a hurry and the implication feels like I've slowed them down by those couple of microseconds. <laughs> And you know what? What were you going to do with those few seconds? Nothing of any import. If the doors are taking their sweet time to close, that's fine. But it's that sort of repeated jabbing and glaring that I think we could do without. I tend to smile at everyone when I get in the lift. I hope that dissipates some of that glaring. And I let everyone else go out first. Those two seconds of me waiting to let someone off the lift... Really? Is that causing me too much trouble? No. Where else are some unusual etiquette or manners? I normally travel by train or by plane quite a lot, but I haven't for the past few months because I'm working with a, a client who's local to me. But I did have to take the Duchess to the station the other day, and she had quite a large heavy bag. The very nice chap at the gate at, the, at my local train station was, was happy for me to go and help her onto the train. And, uh, and they offered if they could do it, but no, it's fine. It's not a problem for me. I knew I was going to be carrying this bag on and finding a place to store it. So I let everybody else get onto the train ahead of us. I'd have to kind of drop the bag, find a place for it, and then dash off the train before it left. That worked fine. But there's a chap who was basically doing the same thing, but he'd made sure he got on really quickly. He ended up in the situation where he, he then had to try and kind of force his way through all these people who were still trying to find their seats and put their bags away so he didn't get stuck on the train which strikes me as a little bit silly. It is a little bit silly. Well, it's, it's like that thing when you get on a, an aeroplane and everyone really becomes very selfish about getting their own bags and their overhead lockers and not letting anyone else get past or, you know, I'll just hold up the entire plane whilst I fiddle around and stand in the aisle to get my bags up and get my pillow out and get everything out. Well, you hang on a second. We all have to get on the plane for a second or... Yes, indeed. And we're all going to get there at the same time anyway, because we have to go together. That's the point of a plane. You're not going to save yourself any time on your journey. You know, at most, you're going to give yourself an extra couple of minutes of sitting down on an eight hour flight. Mm, exactly. Yes. And also little things like get your book out beforehand. I'm commuting quite frequently into London now. And as soon as the train's coming in, I get my book out out of my bag before I get on the train. So I just put my bag on the, the luggage rack above the seat and sit down with my book. You know, I don't have to faff around to get everything out or have the bag on my lap or banging into people. Two further things I think are on manners just while we're talking about, or three maybe. One is a, a book that was uh, recommended, which I will purchase and we will probably review oh, on here, okay. which looks fabulous, The Rituals of Dinner by Margaret Visser. And it's why table manners matter which I think is lovely. It was reviewed in The Guardian. I will buy it and we, we, we shall review it. And again, anything about great table manners and the history of table manners, perfect reading, I think, in our world. Absolutely. And the other thing which I thought was great was an Israeli coffee shop. It gives a discount for good manners. Oh, fantastic. So if customers say please or thank you, you will pay 30% less. The usual price is eight shekels and you'll pay six shekels if you say please and thank you when you order a regular sized cup of coffee, which is encouraging more respectful conversation in Israeli society. I think that's genius. I think so, yes. Though I have to say there has been a bit of a backlash about it. Okay. I know some of my Israeli friends are not... It's quite a tall order for Israelis. 
they normally pride themselves on being very direct and to the point and not bothering with all that please and thank you nonsense. Yes, exactly. I have to remember a conversation I had with um, a friend of mine when we were in a bar in Israel uh, some time ago. We'd ordered drinks. And when I paid, my friend said, oh, you should tip him. And I said, um, why should I tip him? He was incredibly rude. The drink order was wrong. We had to get you know repeat it three times, almost threw the drinks at us. And he said, yeah, but they don't make money off the bar very much. They get less than basic wage. They make the most of their money off tips. And I said, well, then they better learn some service if they want to get tips from Western people. He shrugged his shoulders in a very Israeli way. And it's very interesting that they're trying to incentivize Israelis to be more polite by giving them discounts. I think that's an interesting thing to do. We shall see how it goes. Just be polite. Please and thank you. Cost nothing. Takes a little time. Queuing. We have to talk about queuing. There was an article in the Evening Standard, yes, about people queuing, and they posted a photograph of an Ed Sheeran gig at the O2 Arena. So sold out, and they sort of just created a queue automatically. Yes, a very, very long queue. I mean, the photo, we'll probably have to put the photo on our Facebook feed. This is easily at least 200, maybe 300 people. Yes, that form their own snaking perfect queue. Indeed, there were no barriers, no people saying queue this way, queue that way, they're just a bit glorious. How very British and wonderful. Although, there was something I saw which goes even further than that from Japan, and it was the launch of a beta test for an online role-playing game. And this was this amazing picture of of a huge long line of game avatars of characters that people had created in an online world queuing in the online world to join the area where you can play and some of these people were queuing for sort of six or seven hours and if someone went away from the keyboard nobody nipped around in front of him they just patiently waited and then pressed their w key to move their character forward a couple of steps and then waited and and did that and i thought that was was delightful and probably the only places that would do it would be Japan and Great Britain. It's one of these things where until the technology sorts it out for us and uh, and makes it easier for everyone, just a little bit of manners makes life run along that much e- more easily. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier a, a book that you've been looking at. I'm halfway through it. I'll probably have to do a proper review later. It's called The Organised Mind by Daniel Letovin. Levitin. It's funny you say that because I have a copy on my to-do list and I haven't got to it yet. I would pick it up and then start reading it. It's a little deceptive. The title is The Organised Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. But what it's really is he's a scientist, psychologist, I think by trade, a PhD in psychology at Stanford Medical School in UCH Berkeley. He's uh, the Professor of Behavioural Neuroscience and Music at McGill University in Montreal in Canada currently. Really interesting, but it's quite deceptive. It's really about how our brain thinks and how we use our brain to think and how we get interrupted by things and how our brain works on those interruptions. And the really, really interesting things are things that we've talked about previously about, and we mentioned earlier about mobile phones interrupting us and how bad that is. There's one instance in it where it says, um, notifications on your phone, if the notifications are pinging, your email pings, and you're distracted by the notification, you drop 10 IQ points. I can well imagine that. I think it was Microsoft, their business analysis unit, did a thing a little while ago about the cognitive effects of, or the cognitive cost of having things like open chat windows and open email windows. And they called it CPA, Continuous Partial Attention where you're basically giving a couple of of slices of your brain's ability to pay attention to something, which is inefficient. They've been proved now that you have a capacity of about four things to do, chunking of about four things. I, I use an argument quite often at work where I'm dealing with clients, and I say priorities are like limbs. 
you might think you've got more than four, but you haven't. You're crazy. Because that's all you can manage. Yeah, and they've proved this now. They've proved this is four is all you can manage. Multitasking is really bad for you. It's really quite difficult to do. You can't be productive multitasking. No matter what anyone says, you're not fully functioning on what you're doing. It's just a really interesting book about how we organise our brains, how we organise things in our minds, how we get distracted by things, and our brains are not caught up for the modern world. The point he makes is... A hundred years ago, the modern home probably only had 200 items in it. We now have over 2,000 items in a modern home. When you used to send uh, communication, it was letter. You'd maybe get 10 letters a day, but you'd have time to read them at your leisure. You would respond to them. You know, the phone calls, the landline, you would answer the phone. If it was ringing, you'd answer it and dealt with it, but it didn't ring all the time. You know, the information was much lower and therefore our brains were able to deal with it. Now we just get bombarded with information. It's very difficult for us to deal with, and our brains are nowhere near getting ready to achieve anything like it. We're now in a point where our evolution has to catch up with the amount of information that's going, and in the meantime, our brains are not suited to the way the world is at the moment. David Allen, who does the Getting Things Done books that we've talked about in the past, his argument is that there's no such thing as information overload. As such, it's just information which is not in the right context. And I think that's probably a bit of semantics. We're talking about the same things. His point is that it's information that you have to decide what to do with that's the problem, not information itself, especially when it's interruptive. There's an idea that came out of Y Combinator, so the American sort of startup incubator. That talks about something called maker's time, manager's time the most useful minimal amount of time that you can get something done in. And if you're a manager or somebody like me who, who spends a lot of my work in, in meetings, it's probably about 10 to 15 minutes. You know, I can have a meaningful conversation or check a piece of information in 10 to 15 minutes. If it's somebody whose job it is to make changes to a very complex amount of code, say, or somebody who's a, who's a writer or an artist or somebody who creates using that part of their brain, you know, it's probably more like four to six hours. And if you interrupt in the middle of it, you've really damaged the productivity of that chunk. No, it's interesting. I'm only uh, just under halfway through the book. We'll have to do a proper review. And uh, I think I mentioned to you before, I usually tag my books and then write notes afterwards. Let's put it this way. I've used one and a half of my post-it note tag things already. <laughs> and I'm only halfway <laughs> through the book. Fantastic. I'll pop it up on, on the top of the list. It'll be the next one I get to. I think you'd very much enjoy it. So a couple of last rounding up things. You and I saw an article in Esquire, which was the UK's most Googled men's style questions. I've looked at them and I can understand why you'd be questioned people would ask. I think Esquire, as usual, give mostly reasonable answers. Let's run through them and see what we think. One that I will have no idea about, how to keep white converse clean. Not on my world knowledge list. Same as me, don't know, don't really care to know. <laughs> the best weapon for whiteness is foresight, what Esquire say. So apply a protector and then use the right cleaning stuff. That seems reasonable. You know, a regular cleaning of one's shoes is a good thing. Absolutely, and especially putting something on which is going to protect it long term. That's part of the job of polish. That's one of the reasons why we polish our shoes. Same as in the same way that you would wax your car. It's to apply a protective layer. Next on the list, sir. So this is how to wear boots. Esquire kind of have gone with the same point I would, which is make sure you've got the right size, put your socks on, and then put your feet in them. <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> 
It's a bit more than that. We did talk last week, the week before, about the best colour for shoes. And I think that applies also to boots. I have three pairs of boots that I wear quite regularly, at least probably once a week. They're generally my go-to two shoes. I have a uh, four, actually, I guess. I have a pair of black boots, dark brown, light brown, and then dark cherry red. They're all relatively casual boots. I've got two with broguing, two without. The two with broguing one's a very casual pair, almost like a desert boot, and the other one is is a big, heavy sort of walking pair of boots. And those I those I quite often use when I know I'm going to be tramping around the town for ages. So how how do you wear boots, Zach? When do you wear them? Considering the last time I wore boots that are not walking boots, like you know hiking boots, was cowboy boots. And that was some time ago now. I haven't worn my cowboy boots for some time. I've never worn cowboy boots. Well, there's a long story about this. So when I was growing up, a few decades ago now, so I've got size 12 to 13 feet. Back in the UK in those days, it was very, very hard to find good shoes without spending a huge amount of money with that size. The only shoes that I could find that fit that I liked were cowboy boots. Oh, fair enough. So I used to wear cowboy boots a lot, and this is when I was wearing denim and things like that. I still have them. I still look after them. I can't remember the last time I wore them. Probably the last time I had a pair of jeans, which is, what, five years ago now? It was kind of a very similar thing to what they said, put socks on, put them on. Yes. For me, the only thing is I wear them with informal clothing yes occasionally i'll wear them with flannels if i'm wearing a jumper or something like that but generally it's casual friday type clothes or it's jeans and maybe i'm just going to the local for a drink or i'm sitting in the garden with the duchess relaxing boots are generally big they're often especially if they're the more chunky styles they're much bigger than just a pair of shoes with an extra piece on the ankle so you want to be really careful that your trousers are the right length so you don't have any pooling. I don't want any break with boots because it just adds too much bulk at the bottom of the leg and I've got short enough legs anyway. I don't want to add to that. Even if that means rolling the bottom of your jeans up a little bit and putting a bit of a turn up on there. Don't disagree with that. I don't think that's perfectly acceptable. So what's our next question? How to wear a tie clip. How to wear a tie clip. Do you wear a tie clip, sir? I do. Um, I don't wear it often. Certainly I tend to wear it when I'm not wearing a three-piece suit, number one. Don't wear a tie clip with a three-piece suit. I do wear it, especially when I've got a tie which I know moves around a lot. Or I have got a tie that doesn't quite, when you knot it, doesn't quite fit the clip in and I want to keep it tight. So I do wear tie clips. Very simple, really. I, I tend to wear them, as they say in the in the Esquire articles, generally between the third and fourth button. It depends on the lapel on the first button of the suit, but generally sort of on level with your pocket square pocket, your top breast pocket. Do you quite often see chaps wearing them quite high up? And they're not really going to do anything for you there. Yes. I do wear them quite often. I have a I have a silver, a gold and a, a wooden one that I picked up. And I tend to wear the wooden one if I'm wearing a brown flannel suit, normally an, an off-white or a cream shirt with some texture and maybe a, a knitted tie. So it's just, it just adds to that. One piece of advice that Esquire do give that I take slight issue with is not to wear them with a pocket square because it's too much embellishment. For me, I think I wouldn't wear... A tie clip with a very patterned suit or a more decorative suit and not with a probably a very patterned tie or a very patterned pocket square. I never wear a suit without a pocket square. I would have the tie clip on when everything else is quite smart, quite almost monochrome, just to give a little bit of interest to the centre of the of the suit. Yeah. So there we go. So Esquire, I think that you're over over egging the pudding on that one. On that one, yes. The next question, Zach, what's that one? How to roll your sleeves. Yes. Now according to Esquire, you unbutton your cuffs 
turn the cuff inside out, fold it back using the width as a measuring point, and keep folding until your sleeve is just below your elbow. I disagree with that. Me too. How do you do it? Well, I tend to only do one turn. So I tend to, as they say, unbutton your cuff. This is single cuffs. I have double cuffs as well. So it makes little difference, but not much. When I wear French cuffs, as they say, double cuffs or French cuffs, um, I just unbutton my cuff, turn the cuff inside out, and then just do one fold. And if I need to make it higher, I pull the shirt up above my elbow. I probably would do the same, other than if I'm in a more casual setting. So if I'm wearing a, a linen shirt and I'm wandering around town and it's the summer or something like that. What I do instead of that, which I think is a gives a much neater fold, is I'll unbutton the, the cuff and then fold it back to pretty much just above my elbow or just below. The sleeve has almost been folded in, in half, if you like, and then fold the inside of the shirt, which is now at the bottom where the bend of the fold is, fold that over in the same width as the cuff and I find that stays in place a lot better and just looks a little bit neater in any sort of formal session I mean sometimes at work I will roll up my sleeves as part of the body language I'm wanting to show if I'm getting a team to to win the right guys we're going to get right down to the detail on this we're going to dive in and I will roll up my sleeves I'll do as you do you're just a just a couple of rolls maybe three at the absolute most but not all the way up if I'm at work or in a formal setting. I don't think I've ever undone my cuffs and rolled my sleeves up when I'm in the suit. Maybe once when I've washed up. And the last question, James? What shoes do you wear with shorts? It's a bit of a random question as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it depends what shorts. Let's start with that. <laughs> I think, you know, Esquire and I are very much of one mind on the first point, which is you won't be wearing flip-flops unless you're at or very near the beach or a pool. You and I sing from the same hymn sheet on that one completely. Flip-flops should be banned. They're shoes that do a particular job, and that job is protecting your feet as you move from somewhere that's wet to somewhere that's not. That's it. No, exactly. And then shoes for the shorts, let's say they're formal shorts as opposed to sports shorts. For my mind, if you're wearing sports shorts, there's only two reasons for doing that. You're at or near the gym or you're at or near the beach. And either of those cases, trainers or appropriate beach footwear. Absolutely. But if we're talking about a pair of tailored shorts that you know, you're wearing in the summertime, I tend to wear slip-on driving sort of moccasin-type shoes. I did have until quite recently and they gave up the ghost a pair of espadrilles or even some very fine and, and lightweight suede shoes. They're almost halfway between a, a trainer and a shoe. The thing that links all of those is they're all relatively informal and they're very small in size, thin sole and they're thin material. And then you wear them either without socks or with no-show socks. I have a half a dozen pairs of driving moccasins of various different styles, and I have a couple of pairs of more solid summer shoes that are breathable, almost like deck shoes, but not quite. And and no socks, or socks that you don't see. I totally agree with that. We're almost on the right track, though they do suggest trainers, but um, we shall forgive Esquire for their youthful exuberance. Well, they do make it up by saying no cargo shorts ever. We can all be of one mind on that. Yes, exactly. You had one final thing to mention before we toddle off. Now, we've talked about in the past about imposter syndrome. We have. Something that so many of us feel, and often we don't talk about it or know about it. And so I I saw this wonderful little note from Neil Gaiman. Yes. Fantastic author, one of my favourites, and an all-round thoroughly lovely chap. And he talks about being at this gathering of the great and the good. Artists, scientists, writers, musicians. And he was feeling like he didn't belong, like he was going to get found out at any minute and be shown the door. 
the very definition of an imposter syndrome. Uh, there was a, a musical interlude and he was chatting to a very nice, polite, elderly gentleman and they got on the subject and they shared the same first name and, and this, this chap said, I just look at all these people and think, what am I doing here? You know, they've done all these amazing things. I just did as I was told. And, uh, and Neil Gibbon replied, yes, but, but you were the first man on the moon. <laughs> if Neil Armstrong can feel like an imposter, it's quite understandable that we all can. I think that's delightful and very true. We all feel like that sometimes. And if I think sometimes if you don't, you probably need to start just paying attention a bit more. <laughs> you need to have your ego in check. Yes, it's time to have a word with yourself, as my mum would tell me. Exactly. Well, there we go. I think we had a, a particularly productive episode. Absolutely, yes. I've got a, a couple of books, The Rituals of Dinner, to order and the organised mind to read. And uh, I'm going to keep my eye out for spontaneous cues. Yes, why not send us photos of spontaneous cues? Drop us a note on Instagram, uh, Facebook or one of the other media channels that we have. Please do contact us if you have questions. We're always happy to answer your questions about anything. It's enquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or you can get us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and all the other channels. You can contact me or James directly. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to The Perfect Gentleman. James, I will see you next week. Indeed. Take care, my friend. This podcast is brought to you by The Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace.